0: Thank you for joining us for Time in the Chapel. Each week we eagerly try to discover what God has been saying to us since time began and even further back than that. Sometimes it's right on the surface. Sometimes we have to dive a little bit deeper, but either way we do our best, lean not on our own understanding, in all our ways acknowledge Him and expect that He will direct our paths. So, grab your Bible, prepare your hearts and minds, hit the pause button long enough to pray for the help of the Holy Spirit, and then join me as we open up the treasures of God's Word. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. I'm fairly certain that none of you remember that this was the passage that actually started this whole grueling series. We are in part four. Now, I quoted Colossians 1, 21 and 22 at the beginning of this series, perhaps mentioned it a time or two and then never got back to it until today. Once again, this time from the revised version, it's a little bit clearer. And you being in time past alienated and enemies in your mind in your evil works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and without blemish and unreprovable before him. Now, this passage, again, Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, this passage is universally considered to be describing the atonement. Now, we have spent the last month trying to dig out what atonement means. What have we accomplished? Well, I'm not sure. I can tell you what my goals were. Oh, listen, I know what your goals were. You set out to prove William Tyndall wrong. No, not true. And as a matter of fact, I didn't do that even if it was my goal, which it was not. More on that later. You might be surprised. The truth is, first of all, through this series and just about everything we do around here, I set out to encourage you to take your salvation seriously. And then contained within that, I want you to see most of all that you need saving. We all do. And I want you to know that there is a way to be saved. But the important part about that is that I want you to be convinced that you need saving based on your own assessment of the facts. God gave you a brain for a reason, and it's not so you can be good at Sudoku. He gave you an analytic brain so that He, mostly through His Holy Spirit, can work through it, your brain, And you become convinced of, well, several things. But at this moment, we are talking about salvation. God gave you a brain so that through his Holy Spirit, he can work through your brain to convince you that salvation is needed and available. God gave you a brain so you can come to the conclusion through his help that you need to be saved now that's important to this series and again everything we do we don't we don't want you to come to a conclusion just because someone tells you something even me especially me i want you to realize that God is interested in your becoming convinced of your condition on your own. For 2,000 years, the church has told us that we need saving, and we've all said, yes, Master, we need saving. All the while, the church has been... Well, let me not go there today. Let me just say the church has almost always said one thing and done another but the point i want to make is that the church has always expected you to put your faith in it and it'll do the rest and by the way i'm not i'm not talking about any denomination creed or religion I'm talking about men telling you that they're smarter than you and that you shouldn't concern yourself with all the details. God has never advocated nor encouraged ignorance. He wants your love and your fidelity, and only you can give that that to Him. Only you can give your love And only you can place your trust, your fidelity in Him. Now, I I know that sounds obvious, but look around you. Tell me if that's what you see. Next time you're in church, hopefully that's next Sunday, ask the third person you see if they are saved. And don't be surprised if they don't know what you're talking about. But if they do, know what you're talking about I mean. And the answer is yes that they are saved. Ask them how they know and I guarantee you'll hear a canned response. I'm saved because Jesus died for my sins. We'll ask them to explain that and you'll likely get a blank stare. Oh, I'm sorry, I got to go get coffee. Oh look, look, there's pastor. I got to say hi. I'll, I'll answer that question later. I don't want that to be any of you. It was me for most of my life. I was very good at giving the corporate answer but I didn't understand it. Salvation is important. Salvation is important to you. And it's important to the people that you're going to help lead to Christ. If you can't explain why you're saved, how are you going to help others? I don't want that for you. In this series and everything else we do, we want you to take responsibility for your beliefs. Now, Before I go any further, let me clarify. And you know I've been telling you that since the beginning of my ministry. But when I tell you to take responsibility for your beliefs, that in no way means you make truth whatever you want it to be. The Bible tells us that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Making your beliefs your own does not mean you bend the truth to fit you. It means you discover the truth and bend yourself to it. You see, if you don't even convince yourself of truth, you'll never commit to it. And how are you going to convince yourself of truth and thereby commit to it if you don't know what you're talking about? Just don't take someone's word for it unless that someone is the Holy Spirit. That's my philosophy, if you will, of the Christian journey. The Christian journey of discovery. The discovery of truth. So to demonstrate my commitment to the idea that we must all take responsibility for our beliefs. I've been taking you on a demonstration tour of late. I've taken you along with me as I demonstrate how I attempt to validate what someone has always told me. And I did that in the only place true validation can come, God's Word. So now for a more specific goal. I had set out to discover in this series what atonement meant. And in that journey, in the beginning, I was presented with the notion that when this word atonement was used in Scripture, it was meant to convey the concept of unity. That's what the Oxford Dictionary told us. Now, lest you think that the Oxford Dictionary of the 21st century is too secular, the same or a similar definition is found in Fawcett's Bible Dictionary, Easton's Bible Dictionary, as well as Hastings' Dictionary of the Bible. All academic, theologic resources. Nearly all resources, secular and theological, agree that the word atonement originally meant at one meant, at one meant unity, being at one, the state of being at one, at one meant. And when I first heard that, this is a review for some of you, it didn't sound right because I didn't believe at one mint was really a good translation of the original. So I took us on this expedition through various academic resources. We looked closely at scripture. We reviewed the original language, original languages, and we arrived at a conclusion. Atonement means covering. That's really how we left it last week. When Jesus, the atonement, and my atonement, came along, and your atonement, he, Jesus, covered us against God's wrath. He is the atonement. He covered us against wrath. Now, we're not going to go through a review to demonstrate that, except to say that the word atonement in the Old Testament always translates some form of the Hebrew verb kafar, and the Hebrew verb kafar means to cover. Now, it, it seems so definite from our little exercise that you would think that the matter should be closed. But I can't let it go. I couldn't let it go, and I can't let it go. William Tyndall, the inventor of this word, arguably, was no slouch, as my mother would say. I still don't know what a slouch is, but whatever a slouch is, Tyndall is not one of them. Tyndall was a genius. Though it's difficult to pin down exactly the year of his birth, it's believed that he entered Oxford University as early as the age of 12, but probably closer to 13 or 14. Imagine, Oxford University, if you think it's prestigious today, the Oxford University of the medieval era, the Middle Ages, was one of very few prestigious universities in the entire known world, and he was granted admission to that prestigious university. Either at the age twelve, age of twelve, thirteen, or fourteen. He received his first degree from Oxford by his eighteenth birthday, and then a masters three years later this is the William Tyndall that we're talking about and then he after his years at Oxford he quickly became one of the most influential teachers and writers of his day and above all and this is what this is why I can't let this go this is what gives me pause he was and is universally considered a gifted linguist. You know what a linguist is, a language expert. It was said, and now I want you to remember something. This was a time when the pace of the education process was glacial compared to today. Things moved very slowly. They didn't have the internet they didn't have public libraries, they didn't have consistent primary and secondary education in preparation for university work. The printing press was still very sparsely used in England, and yet Tyndall, uh, amidst all of those obstacles, became fluent in French, German, Italian, Spanish, Latin, of course. He was He was actually an ordained priest, and more importantly, Greek. It wasn't even until after he left England that he took on the task of learning Hebrew, and he became an expert in that. He was only 42 years old when he died. He packed all of that in, in a very short life. That means only one thing. He was gifted. But what's more important, in my opinion, than being a language expert, is that he was a communication expert. He was an expert in communicating ideas, meanings. It's one thing to be able to transfer, translate a word to another word, word to another word. There's an, an entirely different thing to translate a meaning. It's the difference between translating a word and translating a sentence. Tyndall was an expert at translating sentences and meaning. Language is more about ideas than words, and Tyndall knew that, and he mastered that. And as I read more about him... More and more, I pondered his word atonement. He intended it to mean at one minute. We looked at it, and it's difficult to see that when translating word to word. I painstakingly tried to find that, and it didn't translate word to word. But then I read the following. And you, being in time past, alienated and enemies in your mind, in your evil works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and without blemish and unreprovable before him. Although this passage doesn't use the word, isn't this what we know atonement to be? The meaning, not the word, the meaning. Isn't this what we are told atonement is? And you being in time past alienated and enemies in your mind, in your evil works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and without blemish and unreprovable before him. My point is this, atonement isn't just a word. It's an idea. And Tyndall forced us to look beneath the translation. Tyndall gave us a word that went to the meaning and not just the translation. And Colossians 1, and 22 show that to us. I mean, this statement of Paul's is the gospel. This statement is the executive summary of the entire Bible, and it just so happens to be speaking of atonement and atonement. ment Let me demonstrate. And you, being in time past, alienated and enemies in your mind, in your evil works, yet now hath he reconciled. Now, first of all, The author of this letter is trying to do what I've been trying to carry on as expressed earlier. Paul very succinctly states that we are sinners. And of course, that means all of us. He says it here. He says it throughout his letters. It tells us that in the entire Bible, we are all sinners. Paul may have been writing this letter to the church at Colossae, but as is the case with everything he wrote. Paul was talking to all of us, and this is one of the most powerful and really frightening statements in all the Bible. And you, being in time past, alienated and enemies in your mind, in your evil works, yet now hath he reconciled. The literal translation, based on the way the sentence is structured, means that we were made aliens it says in times past alienated well that means we were made aliens now not little green men but that we were estranged that god himself estranged us he banished mankind this verse is an explanation of god's action In response to our sin, God alienated us. He exiled us. Now listen carefully because this is is important in the understanding of the human condition. This This is the answer as to why mankind is the way it is. This is the answer as to why it is impossible to pick up a newspaper or turn on the news or download a news story without being shocked. When Adam and Eve sinned, he threw them out. When Adam and Eve committed what theologians call the original sin, God kicked them out. But listen, and I tell you this all the time, let's not get the idea that we're simply innocent victims of the sins of our fathers. Get this straight. In the Bible, the only time innocence is ever mentioned, it's in reference to Christ. Whenever God talks about us, He doesn't use the word innocence. If Adam hadn't committed the first sin, one of us would have. I know it's a silly notion, but I just want to make sure we don't make the mistake of thinking that we are simply dealing with a generational curse of some t- some kind and nothing more. And in case you need that on better authority, let's go back to Paul. And you, being in time past alienated and enemies in your mind, in your evil works, yet now hath he reconciled. Paul is laying out our, our personal, individual need for atonement, for reconciliation. When Paul says we're alienated, the inference is that the action of alienation occurred by God's hand. We were alienated. God pushed us out of fellowship with him. God had us removed from his presence. In the garden, man and God were united. Sin broke that unity. That was not God's intention. Nor was it his plan. Listen to me closely. Nor Was it a part of the engineering process of our creation? His plan, his intention, our blueprint is that we be one. Starting to see where this is going? When Adam sinned, we, man and God, were no longer. At one it is it's this alienation this separation that has left men broken why does evil happen in the world because God and man are not one and it affects everything when God and man's unity was broken man's unity with nature was broken Nature was created to serve man because man was unified with God. When God and man broke apart, man and nature broke apart. It's, this, is, this is biblical. Now everything is pressed against us, including us, because we're foreigners. We're aliens. We're illegal immigrants. In this alienation, this separation, we're broken. I'll say it again look around you, read the newspaper. Daily, we are presented with the deplorable evil that pervades. And we ask why. And by the way, don't get the idea, don't buy into the hype that we're somehow getting better. We like to pat ourselves on the back and say, we're civilized now. We've really risen above our savage ancestry. That is nothing but delusion. We seem to like to delude ourselves today. Delusion is okay. As long as mankind is alienated, we remain broken and we remain savage. We're no less savage than at any time before. And according to Paul, it's so pervasive that it's actually seated in our intentions and in our actions. In our minds and in our evil works, because we are no longer united with God. Paul says that this alienation has made us God's enemies in our minds. Isaiah said the same thing, 59 2. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. We were created to be an extension of God. Let us make man in our image. Let us make Man, an extension of us. Now, that may sound like an oversimplification, but it's accurate. Our very creation, our processes were based on the assumption of an ever present connection to God. Sin broke that connection, and it's affected us in every way. Ever wonder why Adam lived to be about 900 years? Adam was born, created really, he was created, at a time when the life force had a direct plug-in to God. even after being removed from the garden. And some say that happened within days. I don't think we really know for sure. But let's just say it did. It still took 900 years for that life living. For, the God knows nothing about death. God has never experienced death. He, it's, not, it's not a part of his being. He knows of it, but he has never experienced it. It took 900 years for the living force to work its way out of Adam. And if you look at how old people were in the Old Testament, people think, critics of, of the Bible say that's just all fantasy. It's not fantasy. Those men and women lived that long because they were just, the, the, the godness was being washed out of their system and it took time. once we get our new bodies as promised in scripture, we'll be plugged right back into God and we'll live eternally. That's what we're told. We can't live eternally now because we're disconnected from the source. If you plug your cell phone into the wall, it will never lose its charge until you unplug it. And then eventually that cell phone will die. that's a terrible comparison to what happened to mankind and it's not just in our lives there was peace in the garden there was peace on earth mankind and his environment were in unity because mankind and god were in unity It was all unity nothing threatened mankind Nature, I repeat, was to serve mankind. Now we have poisonous spiders and alligators and tigers and diseases. We are now enmity not only with God but with nature. We build these giant homes to keep nature on the outside and nature keeps trying to get back in. We're no longer united with God. We're no longer at one with Him. And the moment that happened, God set to work. It was not His intention. It was not His plan. It was not His engineering process. God did not write into our program death. He didn't write it in. It wasn't there. Because the design characteristic was an ever-present connection to Him. Sin broke that connection. We were never meant to think independently of God. Now that He's no longer our mental guide, everything He thinks seems foreign to us. And human beings in this condition always make enemies out of foreigners. I've had a few experiences where I've tried to share the gospel with someone and it almost turned into a fight. I, and I think if that hasn't happened to you and you're regularly sharing Christ with others, just wait, it's going to happen. I've even had people scream at me. Why are you doing this to me? When I'm simply talking about salvation. And what's worse is that our only hope to overcome the problems of our lives, not just sin, the lack of peace, starvation, disease, hatred the only hope is to reconnect with god only he can change us from what we are into what we were meant to be only he can transform us by the renewing of our mind romans 12 2. Alienation from God affects our minds. It makes us view God as the enemy. That's the mental effect. Well, you'll agree with me that we humans express physically what we think mentally. And you, being in time past, alienated and enemies in your mind, in your evil works. Our evil minds result in evil works. Now, no one can accuse me of being a legalist or a fire-and-brimstone preacher, but there are universal truths that all preachers must preach. Listen to me. The surest sign of alienation from God is evil works. And if any of you are going to turn this program off, it's going to happen in the next three minutes. The surest sign of alienation from God is evil works. And listen, don't get hung up on that old English word. We aren't talking about witchcraft or baby seal bludgeoning. If it's against God's ideal, it is evil cheating on your taxes and stealing cable is just as evil as genocide in God's eyes. And continuing in your sin is proof that you and God are not on speaking terms. But let me qualify that real quick. Lots of us, all of us struggle against sin but can i say that it is the very act of struggling against sin that is the that is the surest sign that we are reconciled struggling against sin means you and god think alike you're on the same page there is a big big difference between continuing in sin and struggling in sin. Both conditions have sin as their expression, but one loves the sin and one hates the sin. It's all dependent on whether or not you are God's enemy in the mind. If you're God's enemy, you will never stop sinning. If you and God are unified through the work of Christ and your acceptance thereof, you will eventually stop sinning. It won't be you that does it. It will be God because God is then in charge of your life and you cannot continue to sin and be useful to Him. So He will stop it. And as I said, you fill in the blanks. The Bible's a very good guide as to what's sinful and what's not. Not your neighbor, not the news, and not the church, by the way. Lots of churches permit some things that are not allowed in Scripture. Again, I'll leave that up to you. But if you are God's enemy in the mind, then you hate His laws, and you live by your own or someone else's. Oh, you probably don't say you hate his laws. You may not say you and God are enemies. In fact, most enemies of God deny that they're his enemies. That's not socially acceptable. If you you went on Facebook or Instagram and said, I hate God, he's my enemy, chances are you're not going to have too many friends for very long. Most enemies of God deny that they're his enemy. They may even go to church. They may pray. They may sing in the choir. But as long as they love their sin, they are in their mind God's enemy. And the expression of that is their continued sin. There's no way around it. What if I try and I fail, try and I fail, try and I fail? If you're trying with God and failing, that's one thing. Because eventually, with God, you will not fail. As long as you, in your mind, love God's law and hate that sin. Because God will not allow any of us to continue in our sin and retain fellowship with Him. You sin, you're out. Hebrews 12, 14, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. John, you are really become a legalist. I'm not a legalist. You see, as I mentioned before, you actually don't have any control over your holiness. You must get that from God, both for your salvation as well as your sanctification. And the only way to get that holiness for salvation and maintain it throughout is to turn your mind over to Him. I tell you, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Luke thirteen three. Repentance is a change of mind. You know that. You have to change your mind from being an enemy with God to wanting to be friends with God. When we've lost our unity with God, we are helpless and hopeless. Mankind cannot fix its own problems. We could have a UN office on every corner of every street around the world, and it will fail unless God is worshiped as God. I repeat, the human race was created for this unity. There's no purpose outside of that for mankind when you are alienated from him you have no purpose how could you even if you've dedicated yourself to yourself your dedication will someday lose its object you may be thinking you're doing yourself a favor by serving you but serving self is the height of futility because it doesn't last why serve something that will eventually be unable to receive your service staying alienated from god means nothing is going to make you happy because you will always live below your purpose now if you've grasped even if you've grasped this with even the slightest ca- clarity If this has made even the minutest of impacts on you, you should be shouting in your mind, how can I be saved? Where do I turn for safety? And listen, you don't have to understand it all. You may not be able to understand so-called original sin. You may not be able to speak of the theological implications of the fall of man. You may not be able to debate mankind's works versus grace right now all you may know is that you're in danger and you need a rescuer listen if you fell asleep on the deck of one of those riverboat cruises and the next thing you know you're heading toward a waterfall you wouldn't waste your time trying to figure out how you ended up in the water no how did i get up and get in the water as you're going through the waterfall All you want to know is who's going to fish me out. Listen, there'll be time to figure out how you got in the water in the first place once you're out. But first things first, save me. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled reconciliation is theologically equivalent to atonement and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works yet now hath he atoned now it hath received the atonement in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight The history of Christianity is an absolute mystery to me, and I study it a lot. Jesus commissioned the church right before he was taken up to heaven, and when he did so, he gave very explicit instructions, explicit and simple. Mark 16, 15, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Of course, that means every man. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Those are the instructions at the commission of the church. And you know what? I'm, I'm not sure we've ever even gotten started on that, even after more than 2,000 years. We've preached just about everything else. We've told people they have to go to confession. We've told them they have to plunk a few coins in the collection plate. We've told them they have to be nice to each other. We told them they have to wear the right clothes, go to the right church, live in the right place, elect the right president. But we've hardly ever preached the gospel. And that's all he's asked us to do. You preach it, he'll take care of the rest. I'm actually a little hesitant to ask some people if they know what the gospel is. I mean, the word gospel is one of the most common in the New Testament, appearing more than 100 times from Matthew through Revelation. And yet I'm not sure there are too many people who could define it. And I say that out of pity, not judgment. Well, here, as I said, Paul lays it out perfectly. If you're wondering and you don't know, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Haven't I told you before, usually during our communion services, that it took a life and a death to reconcile us, to use Paul's word? That's why there are two elements at the table. We're not going to the table of the Lord today. Don't worry. You didn't, you didn't miss the memo. I just referenced it. There are two elements at the table because it took a life and a death. Haven't I told you that? Colossians 1:21 and 22 is our proof text. Yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh, That's the life part. His life, his his living had a purpose. It was a part of the plan. His living was as important as his dying. I mean, if the death was all that was necessary, why didn't he just come down? take on flesh, be born of a virgin, and then immediately or shortly thereafter die. It's not like there was an opportunity for that. Certainly you remember from your Christmas morning services that Herod ordered the death of every child in Bethlehem two years and younger out of fear of the prophecy of the wise men concerning the death, the birth, I should say, of the promised king of Israel. Remember that? The wise men came and they they said they were looking for the king of Israel. Herod's like, what are you talking about? And then they told him the story. Herod was terrified. So he ordered the death of every male child from two years and younger. Why not just let that happen? Why didn't that just happen to Jesus? I mean, a murder is a murder if all that was necessary was death. If if that was all that was necessary, there's your opportunity. What happened? Well, God sent an angel to Joseph to warn him. Remember that? The angel told Joseph to move, move his family out of Bethlehem and take them to Egypt to keep Jesus safe. Why would God do that if all that was necessary was the death of the Savior? Because his living, his life was necessary as well. But listen, there are just as many people who are willing to ignore his death as are willing to ignore his life we've been told that all we need to do to be saved is to heed the teaching of jesus that there 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 are some who say Jesus' only real value to mankind was what he said not what he did well the truth is jesus didn't say anything new nothing he said was new everything jesus taught someone else had said before Now, it sounded new, but it wasn't. Everything Jesus said was scriptural. Everything Jesus taught was written somewhere in Scripture to include when He said, I and the Father are one. When He referred to God as His Father, that was scriptural. That wasn't new. Everything Jesus said, someone else said and it only sounded new because for centuries before Jesus came to this earth, God's word had been twisted and misapplied. In fact, he was even accused of being a blasphemer, blasphemer, because everything he said sounded so different than what the religious leaders had been teaching. He was teaching truth, that existed since the beginning of time, and they said he was a blasphemer because the the religious teachers taught him something different. Not much has changed. Listen, in teaching, Jesus was actually no different than John the Baptist, who lived at the same time as he did. John the Baptist was also turning the accepted theology of the day on its end, and he lost his head because of it. Nonetheless, he was preaching truth and doing a great job of it. Jesus even said so. In fact, Jesus said, listen to me, Jesus said that John the Baptist was God's messenger. In other words, what John the Baptist said mattered. What John the Baptist taught mattered. John the Baptist, according to Jesus, was sent to be a teacher. Jesus wasn't. Jesus didn't come to be a teacher. For that matter, he didn't come to be a miracle worker. He didn't even come to be a king. Now, he was all of those things, but he was all of those things only because that was his nature. Jesus was just being Jesus when he taught, healed, and led. Well, then why did he come? What was the purpose of his life? Why was he sent? Why was his life preserved when he was around two years old? Well, let's ask him. Matthew 5:17 Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets I am not come to destroy but to fulfill For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Jesus came to fulfill the law. Jesus lived to fulfill the law. His life was dedicated not to teaching, not to healing, not to ruling. His life was dedicated to fulfilling the law. That's what he did in the flesh, again, using the words of Paul found in Colossians. Jesus, in the body of his flesh, lived the perfect life that the law demanded so that the law could pass away. And that's why Paul said he came, he fulfilled in the flesh, that he he did in the flesh to reconcile us. That's the flesh part. What he did in the flesh reconciled us. And that, by the way, is his role as the mercy seat. Remember, we talked about that last week. Fulfilling the law so that it could pass away was his role as the mercy seat. His perfect life covered our imperfect life. It stood as a barrier between us and the perfect standard of of the law. His perfect life was the lid over the tables of the covenant shielding us, protecting us, sealing us away from God's standard. He was caperith, the lid. He fulfilled every jot and tittle so that the law could pass away. He had to. He had to do that, or his death would have been meaningless. If he would have died imperfectly, then the law would have remained. If the law remained, that is, then his entire earthly existence meant nothing. It would have saved no one. Even the brutal death would have done nothing. They were unified, the life and the death. They couldn't be separated. The perfect life and the sacrificial death were inextricable. Never take communion without both elements. Otherwise, it's just a meal. You can, you can take it. You can take bread and then take wine and then separate meal, but it's not communion. If you're not given both elements, then it's not communion. Make no mistake. Jesus lived the perfect life so that the law could no longer separate us from God, so that the law was no longer a barrier, an instrument of separation, an instrument of alienation. Sounds to me, John, like we should consider the law evil. Of course it's not evil romans 7 7 addresses that it's just that the law isn't compassionate the law can't love because it can't forgive it's perfect and therefore it had to be perfected jesus perfected the law he didn't make the law useless he made it satisfied But as wonderful as that is, as miraculous and glorious and magnificent as his perfect life is, even it wasn't enough to save mankind. To repeat the premise of this section, it takes a life and a death. In fact, again I repeat, without the death, The perfect life is meaningless. As a matter of fact, it's repulsive. And I mean that. The perfect life of Jesus is repulsive to us without his death. You see, the the perfect life of Jesus indicts us. The perfect life of Jesus shines the brightest light possible on the depravity of the condition of alienation. His perfect life shows us that we are so far alienated that we seem hopeless, and we are without him. Sorry about that. I get a little flaily when I start talking about this stuff, and I just bash my elbow into my desk. The perfect life of Jesus is so hard for us to fathom Because we're alienated, and He isn't. Jesus was not alienated. He was united. And He shows us what being united with the Father looks like. And that makes us look bad. He said, I and the Father are one, and His perfect life proves that. We can't even for a moment fathom how Jesus accomplished that. Hardly an hour passes in most of our own lives that somehow sin isn't pressing in on us or through us. And this man went 33 years without a single transgression. And to make things even more incredible, Jesus himself once said that even thinking of sinning is enough to fall short of God's ideal. And that's a perfection that not a one of us could even remotely imagine. We've all said, if we believe he did it, and please believe that he did it because otherwise you insult him. But we've all said, how did he do it? How did he live such a perfect life? Well, the answer is simple. Notice I didn't say easy. I said simple. The answer as to how he did something we can't possibly achieve is that we're alienated and he's not. He was united with God and we're not. He could live a life that the law said you must live or die because he was one with the Father, like we used to be. But again, that perfect life isn't what saves. You see, all that a perfect life does was reconcile the law. It brought completion to the law. But the life of Jesus, what he did through the body of the flesh was only part of it. It was in the body of this flesh through death that reconciles us. But we don't like to think about that, do we? Death is messy. It's sad. you know even the enemies of christianity respect christ those that oppose the notion that he is the messiah or the son of god at least they respect the life he led and regret the life the death that he endured we don't want to bring up his death in conversations we we don't like to talk about his suffering it's too unpleasant You can't separate it. Death was as necessary as life. His ugly death and beautiful life must be taken together. The Old Testament sacrificial types, you could only bring the unblemished sacrifices, the unblemished cattle, the unblemished bullock that then had to die there could be no blemishes on that bullock before he was sacrificed it's a picture of the perfect life of christ christ had to come to that altar unblemished otherwise it was not acceptable to god the two that that animal that cattle could live unblemished till it dropped dead in the field and that would have done nothing for the one who offered it for a sacrifice that perfect animal had to be led to be slain otherwise it was a waste of a perfect cow ugly death and beautiful life must be taken together According to not only Colossians, but all of Scripture, in order for us to be reconciled, atoned for, Jesus had to live perfectly and then die. It was a part of his mission. His death was a part of the plan of redemption. God's plan of redemption. It had to be. But but assume for a moment that it wasn't. Jesus lives that perfect life, and that's it. Death wasn't a part of it, but he's taken and hung anyways. Whoa. God says, I didn't see that coming. What kind of God would he be? If Jesus' death was not a part of the plan, then God is not someone to worship. Listen to what G. Campbell Morgan says, Quote, If our reconciliation could have been by incarnation in other words by the life of Jesus if our reconciliation could have been by the life of Jesus then that death was the most awful reflection on the power and wisdom of God that has occurred in all human history Unless there be some profound meaning, unless it be, as Peter says it was, the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, unless there be something infinitely more than the capture of a victim by brutal humanity and his murder, then the permission of that murder undermines my faith in the goodness of God and his righteousness, unquote. If God didn't already have in the plan that Jesus was going to die following his perfect life, if all it took was the perfect life, then God allowing Jesus to be murdered means he is not righteous and he's not good because he allowed an innocent victim to be murdered. That's why we must be certain that the life and the death occurred as a part of God's plan. I don't think we really get it. We couldn't. We don't. I'm including myself. I don't really think we understand the cost of sin. You hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. If I could talk to him I'm sure William Tyndall would tell me that this is why he decided to invent the word at one minute because this is precisely the act of at one. it says reconcile but it should say at one. but reconcile is a good word because that's exactly what happened through the life and death of Jesus the life and death of Jesus laid open the possibility of making our at-war minds into at-one minds. Our minds and God's mind were enemies after we were alienated through sin. Alienation is separation. With God, we were one thing. Without God, we're something completely different. With God, we're His friends acting like his friends. Without God, were enemies who do evil works. Being disconnected from God through sin, having the unity severed by sin brought on death and evil. We were banished to an environment for which we were not created. We were not designed for life outside of God's presence and we cannot adjust. We've been trying. Oh, we pat ourselves on the back for our accomplishments. We like to use words like conquer and cure and overcome and master, but we've done none of those things because we can't. About all we're good at is convincing ourselves that we can. Frankly, it's embarrassing. All around us is chaos. Life outside the garden is discordant, and we call it progress. We need to be unified with God. Mankind's only hope does not rest in that someday we'll be smart enough not to be evil to one another. That's never going to happen. We will always be enemies of God in our mind as long as we don't seek the unity with him that he offered through the life and the death of Christ. It's that simple. John, there's no way you're going to convince everybody to give their life to Christ. I know that. God knows that. In the end, those people will be wiped out not pretty to think of, so we're not going to continue to think of it, but it's true. Mankind's only hope, the Bible tells us, the Bible makes clear, is only one. There's only one reunifier. There's only one atonement. There's only one way to return to being at one with God, and that is Christ. When we accept what He's done anyway, our minds will change. We will repent. We will remake that connection and then we will change. We will go from enemies of God to children of God. I know that I ramble and I feel like I ramble because I don't want to take the risk that you don't understand. I will go on and on if I don't think the light of the truth has hit your heart. I want this so desperately for you. Actually, I want this so desperately for him. He's the one who went through the temptation. and Well, he was tempted to sin throughout his life, no different than you and I. He's the one who fought temptation and human nature, and he did that as often as we do, probably more, and yet he remains sin. Free. Sinless. He remained sinless, sin free. He went through that, just like you and I do. But he didn't sin. That has to mean something to you. He's the one that had to die brutally. That has to mean something to you. I don't want any of that to go to waste. You know, some will so... Piously say, Oh, even if Jesus saved only one person, he would have done the same thing. Yeah, but let's not let that happen, shall we? For his sake, as well as your own, see that perfect life as being lived for you. See the atoning death as being suffered for you, because you need them both. You weren't created to be an enemy of God. You weren't created to be a sinner. You were created to be his child. And let me tell you, you'll never be satisfied until you and he are one. There is an atonement. There is a way to be covered and united to God all at the same time there is a way to fulfill the meaning of your creation go to jesus tell him you want to come home accept what he's done and then spend the rest of your life finding as many others as you can to bring with you together with god's help let's fill heaven You've been listening to Time in the Chapel, a weekly program dedicated to bringing you in-depth biblical study. Join us again next time as we search Scripture to learn more about God in your life and you in His plan. Time in the Chapel is a service of Chapel Ministries. Chapel Ministries is a non-denominational ministry with a mission to feed hungry souls. Please consider supporting this program financially. For more information, please visit our website at www.timeinthechapel.com or email us at info at timeinthechapel.com. Be sure to look for us on Facebook by searching for Chapel Ministries. Click follow to get all of the latest information.